I was taking this thing that I believed and knew that I was very good at and that I cared about, and I was trying to use it to convince this other part of me that I was not an irredeemable piece of shit. So if, if I had enough people saying to me, what you did was really important, or if I had enough of a sense that I had made a difference in doing this thing or that thing, then I would feel redeemed enough to no longer feel really terrible about what kind of human I was. But I never stopped thinking that I was really, really good at being a politician. I just didn't think I was much of a human, and that's why I needed to do as much as possible as a politician so I could prove to that other part of myself that I was not irredeemable. It is my pleasure and privilege to welcome to Ford the New York Times bestselling author for a second time of The Invisible Storm, which is a tremendous book. Military veteran, former army captain, now president of expansion of the Veterans Community Project, Jason Kander joins us. Welcome, Jason. Well, thanks for having me, Andrew. I really appreciate it, man. Thank you. I should have introduced you as fellow presidential candidate in 2020. <laughs> we, uh, well, this is the first time we've ever, like, met. We've talked before. I mean, this is a close to meeting. This counts uh, in post-COVID world. This, this is meeting. Um, but you, we like crisscrossed in Iowa a couple of times where I know I spoke a couple of times. They're like, Andrew Yang was here earlier. <laughs> I was like, oh, so it's kind of funny. Oh, yeah. So I, I'm just going to do some some scuttlebutt around the 2020 race. So check it out. Anonymous entrepreneur Andrew Yang's like, I'm going to run for president. And then I'm like, who else is running for president? And your name was at or toward the top of the list. It was like, you know who's running for president? Jason Kander. And I was like, oh, let me check out this Jason Kander fellow. And I was like, wow, he's really impressive. He's the guy who put that gun together blindfolded in that ad. <laughs> <laughs> that's, 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 that's me, man. That's how I, to this day, that's often how I get introduced. You know, I dare say if that if there was anyone, and you know, I'm I'm friendly with him now, but it's like it's anyone who should have been breathing a massive sigh of relief for you not running, was Mr. Pete Buttigieg. Because if you'd had two young, charismatic military veterans from the Midwest running, <laughs> you guys would have been like head to head. I do remember Pete called when I announced that I was going to run for mayor instead, and functionally, you know, took myself out of the presidential field. Um, and Pete and I were already friendly, and I remember he called, and he was very plain about it. He was just like, look, um, I was looking at it anyway, but obviously you and I were in a similar lane, so, you know, he, we, he just kind of talked with me about here's my strategy. And I remember being like, oh, okay, interesting. And, you know, to his credit, he brought that to fruition, man. Like, he, it was like you and he and, you know, Biden and what, who was, who was there at the end? It was like just a few of you. Yeah, uh, Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie, uh, but uh, there were seven of us wandering around <laughs> those last stages. Yeah. I dare say that if it had been you and Pete, uh, I think that you would have occupied a lot of the same energy and appeal. And for you sure. know, you and I didn't know each other that well, so when you did decide to run for mayor, I was like, oh, well, it looks like one fewer presidential candidate. Uh, and, and then. Uh, and then it hit the news that uh, you were going to be seeking treatment for PTSD, which is what your awesome book is about. And one of the ways that you 
can tell how good a book is is based upon how honest it is. And your book is breathtakingly honest. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am literally an open book at this point. I mean, it's it's uh, once you break the seal, as I did on October 2nd, 2018, and tell the world that you uh, have PTSD symptoms and that you have suicidal thoughts, after that, I don't know, for me, it hasn't been as difficult to uh, you know be really forthcoming uh, and really candid. And in some ways, in some ways, it's it made the book easier because, you know, after I did that, I went and I got I got treatment. And about six months later, and I'm sure we'll get into the whole story, but about six months later, I was done with that real phase of treatment. And I was just, you know, ready to go on with the post-traumatic growth part of my life. And that's what I've done. But I recognize that in the zeitgeist, like to the extent that people still, you know, think about Jason Kander, which I don't know how much they do, and I care a lot less than I used to, which is really freeing. Well, I mean, you're finding out that they do, given that your your book just premiered at the top ten in uh, the New York Times. But continue. No, that is a good point. That is nice. But my point is, is like to the extent that you still exist in the zeitgeist, you're aware. In my case, that like the last thing people heard was, "Hey, man, I'm really messed up. Like I have suicidal thoughts. I gotta go." So there's something really, uh, I don't know, liberating. Yes, thank you. There's something really liberating about being able to say to the world, like, well, here is the journey I went on. Here's the journey I went on after that, so that you don't feel that sort of sense of, like, uh, sympathy projected onto you by the rest of the country. It, it is a little bit nice to be able to to shake that off and be like, okay, it's nice for people to get to the end of the book and know, like, I'm actually doing great. Well, I, I want to applaud you, and, and you, you've gotten this from thousands of people, for helping... Uh, to normalize people seeking treatment for mental illness, Thanks. veteran or non-veteran, I mean that the fact is that everyone struggles, yep. uh, and it's something that we all too often keep to ourselves. Uh, and one of the reasons why reading your book was, for me in particular, a jarring experience, is because you get into the nitty-gritty of just how much being a political figure beats up your personal life, beats up your health, beats up mm -hmm. your mental health. And uh, I've lived a version of that. Um, my version is much less arduous than yours because I kind of uh, catapulted myself into, you know, <laughs> like you, a, you took, you took a bit of a shortcut, of which is, you know, good for you. You, you were, look, man, if I had been able to do that, I would have done it. Like if, if there was a, a, a way where I could be, wait, I don't serve in the legislature. I just run for, I just signed up for that deal. <laughs> so good job, you. <laughs> well, well, thank you, Jason. Uh, my wife thinks so too. Uh, um, but <laughs> one of the reasons why your book is is so honest is because your your wife uh, writes certain passages, uh, and you wanted to help people and be in politics uh, your entire life, uh, and you won your first state rep race. It seems like just by old fashioned shoe leather. Yeah. Um, when I think back, that's my favorite of all the campaigns. Um, and it was just, it was a race for state representative where we knew that I was lesser known and I really, and I didn't know any of the players that you're supposed to know, right? Which is, uh, you know, that, that's the usual underdog story, I guess, in politics. But I was 26 when I started running. And so we figured, well, there's 8,000 houses in this district that are really likely to have primary voters in them. Um, so how about we just meet all those people? And I had just come back from Afghanistan where I, I was, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was the first of many times when I was like, oh, cool, an opportunity to occupy my mind with something that isn't intrusive memories and thoughts. 
that sounds great. So I jumped right into that and I ended up knocking those 8,000 doors two and a half times. So I stood on a porch and knocked on the door 20,000 times in a year. And, you know, despite being the candidate nobody expected to win that race, because we met everybody like more than once, we won with 68% of the vote. Now, so I think this is a very, very powerful and important lesson for people who are interested in politics. Uh, I had an aide who did a similar thing uh, where he became the youngest uh, elected official in the state of New York um, because he was a college student and simultaneously decided to run for state rep. So he even had you beat mm -hmm. by like a few years. Yeah, uh, and, sure. and it was the same thing where if you have a finite number of doors to knock on, um, you can just outwork the other people, particularly if mm -hmm. they are kind of complacent, incumbents, just chilling, and like they, they don't really know what's going on. And if you're the average voter, you're like, well, the young person who knocked on my door seems to care about this job more than this person I barely <laughs> heard of it and know what's going on. So maybe I'll just go that direction. I mean, one of the most common things I heard was, uh, wow, I, I, nobody's actually shown up before. Or, or the other version I would hear of it, which was always interesting, was because you know, there's 163 state representative districts in Missouri, so it's kind of funny that it worked out this way. Several people before me, my predecessor in my state rep district was Claire McCaskill. So it wow. was the same district that Claire had, had represented like 20 years earlier. And Claire, you know, has since become a very good friend, and I knew her a bit then. Um, but it was so many doors where people would say to me, uh, wow, uh, the last person who knocked on this door uh, was Claire McCaskill who at the time that, that I was running, you know, uh, for state rep, she was, you know, already in the, in the U.S. Senate. So, um, it, you know, and they would, they would just be like, wow, that, that's the last person who, and I've had a bunch of state reps since then. So it means a lot to people when you show up. Yeah, so you win that race uh, just by outworking, and then your next race is a secretary of state race that it's too big for you to pull the same trick. Uh, and then there's a more senior legislator uh, who's going to bigfoot you out of that race, uh, has got money, he's got the relationships, has been there a while. Uh, and at this point, you haven't been there very long. You're still in your 20s, I think. And you somehow managed to get him to back down from running against you, which I thought was one of the neatest uh, magic tricks I I've heard of. <laughs> yeah, well, it was one of those things where... <clears throat> And it's part. It's really the first time in the in the book where I kind of let the reader see what I was dealing with behind the scenes and how I, I took that low level of simmering anger that was kind of always there as a result of um, <clears throat> of PTSD, which I didn't know it was that at the time, and I channeled it into something. Which you know, in that case, what it was was yeah. All of a sudden, um, this guy he was the, the county executive in Kansas City, so he had a huge constituency compared to my little constituency. And he'd been around a while. Um, and he decided, yeah, I, well, maybe I'm running too. And he had a full-time staff, you know, like campaign staff. And, you know, and I was a state rep who had like a legislative aide at the Capitol, but that's not campaign staff. And I knew I was going into this meeting with him and he was thinking, well, this is where Cantor comes in and we work it out and he steps aside. And I was thinking, I ain't doing that. I was so mad that this guy was running when he told me he wouldn't. I mean, I was more mad than like really the situation called for. But that was how I was sort of learning to control my emotions. Not even that. It was more like I had learned, I didn't know this then, but I had learned in Afghanistan, you control the situation around you. And if you don't, you die. So I had this need to control everything. And I was, I learned later, turning to anger as a way to feel in control. So 
I go into this meeting and in order to look like I might actually be somewhat intimidating and have some sort of team in place, I called a buddy of mine who was a first year law student and I was like, hey, can you just be a pretend campaign aide? Your fake, your fake aide, I love it. Yeah, and so this guy, Brian, he meets me at a Walmart across the street from the Starbucks and we were meeting. I get into his car, sit in the passenger seat. He drives 300 feet to the Starbucks, gets out. He's got a blazer on. He's got a notebook. He sits during this meeting, doesn't say a word. And I basically lay out like, look, you can run, but I'm running too. And I'm going to outwork you. And this ain't going to be good for you. And it was supposed to be like an hour long meeting, but it lasted six minutes. And two days later, uh, he called and was like, yeah, you're right. Uh, not the right race for me. And it was ha having no idea that Brian went immediately back to class right after that meeting. And I had nobody working for me at all. <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record, your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing, you don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device, you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. And what I loved is as soon as that meeting ended, you just uh, called everyone you knew to, to roll out a couple of endorsements that could help pressure him out of the race. Uh, it, it's really, uh, you know, one of the most elegant pieces of political jujitsu I was aware of, because ordinarily there is such a hierarchy and this person's ahead of you in the totem pole, but you managed to elbow him out. You then become, I want to say, the youngest statewide elected official in the country, uh, and then National mm -hmm. headlines start homing in on this uh, up-and-comer in Missouri. Yeah, I, uh, I hadn't known that I was the first millennial to win a statewide office, but I found out when they started writing about it, and that got me a bunch of national attention, which was exciting for a lot of reasons, but it also gave me yet another thing to sort of uh, distract myself, something to focus on. It gave me this national attention, this opportunity to, I mean, you know, the adrenaline rush of like when you're, when you're doing a remote cable interview or whatever, and you you know, you know, they're about to come to you on national TV, that adrenaline, you know, I hadn't had any adrenaline, like anywhere near uh, the level of Afghanistan so long. And this was, you know, it wasn't Afghanistan level adrenaline, but 
I was addicted to it, and I just kept having to go to these performance opportunities to get these, you know, these highs, these endorphin highs. I've done my share of those remote cable hits, and they are an adrenaline dump because you've got an, a voice in your ear saying, three, two, one, Mr. Kander, you know, like, blah, 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 blah. And then you're like, okay, I'm now going to address hundreds of thousands of people or millions of people. And, and on some level, you know that if, if you shit the bed, uh, you could, you know, Go viral. Make, make yourself a laughingstock, set your career on fire, et cetera, et cetera. Or even underperform, and then the people around you are like, "Hey, that wasn't so good." Um, so it, it actually makes you, you you feel like there's a like a kind of a, a combat instinct. Yeah, and then when it goes well, like that's a great feeling, right? And it can last a while. And and the other piece of that was like, you know, I felt like, particularly by the time later on that I'm like soft running for president, every one of those felt like very high stakes, right? Because I'm, you know. It, you're certainly familiar with what it is to feel like a lot of people are like this guy like do we think this guy is qualified right like, I felt that way I was you know I had been a statewide official but I wasn't a governor and I was 30 what 37 years old or whatever and I was I felt like each time it was like okay gotta go be presidential gotta go prove myself and that was that was a challenge and an adrenaline hit in it in itself yeah so the the thing that uh, really hit home to me about the book is that you talk about the internal struggles uh, of a lot of this, uh, which most people don't appreciate or recognize. And one of the things I, I will share too is that what we just joked about, hey, I just kind of kind of catapulted myself in the national scene. And you're like, hey, if I had done that too. Um, the, the truth is that the wear and tear of this kind of work over multiple years, uh, like I didn't have that. I kind of showed up fresh and then you know, like felt my way through it. Mm -hmm. So I had an accelerated version of it. Um, certainly there were times when the weight of the world felt like it was on my shoulders because like, oh shit, if I screw this up, then hundreds of thousands or millions of people that have invested some kind of uh, hope in me are, are about to be disappointed, which does become an immense amount of pressure. Um, but I only felt that for a relatively brief period of time. Uh, and someone who's been in politics for a while feels some version of it for a really long time. But your book catalogs kind of this cumulative wear and tear uh, it, it puts on you. And that's something that uh, I'm not sure people really appreciate, where you look at political figures and say, hey, why do they seem so uh, abnormal? Uh, and then there's part of me that's like, well, we're putting them in really, really abnormal roles uh, and over extended periods of time, that'll probably mess you up. It's why it's always made me laugh that one of the highest compliments people give politicians is he or she just seems like a normal girl or guy, right? Because like no one has ever described their accountant as like, you know, just really down to earth. That's why I like my accountant. You know, he's just got both feet on the ground, right? But, but when, as a politician, when people say, you know, you just seem normal, it's like the Oscar of our business. I'm the best, uh, like, actor around. <laughs> right, right. It's like, you seem normal is, like, the Medal of Honor of being a politician. There's nothing greater than that, right? And, and I've always found that funny, but you're right. The reason is, is because it is, a, it is a rather abnormal experience. Like, you are going out and you are in a perpetual job interview in every part of your life. You're at the grocery store, someone recognizes you, boom, you're back in a job interview. And so I do think that can have... That can have an effect on people's mental health. I think the reason that it was so appreciably more pronounced for me uh, is, and it, this is yet another thing I learned in therapy, is that my brain learned that 
that you must control every situation. That's what it was like to go into these meetings as an intelligence officer with people who it might be setting a trap. So you got to know where are the exits, how many guys between me and the vehicle, you know, once I get through this exit, if, if I have to fight my way out. Well, you're trying to control it all the time. And then all of a sudden, you know, you come home and there are threats, but they're minor threats. You know, it's to your career, it's to your schedule that day, whatever. But your brain, in my case, my brain had, had not really learned to triage those threats again like it had before I deployed. So it was like everything was ringing the bell at the top. Everything was the threat of dying. And that's why I would frequently say to my wife things like, I feel like I'm dying. And it made no sense to her. But it was the only way I could describe the emotion. You know, I kept telling myself that there was something really wrong with me and it made me dislike myself that I was struggling to triage and, and treat those things as all they were, which was just, they were just career things. That's all they were. They were, that was what was going on with my work. But my brain and my body were reading them as if somebody who might want to kidnap me had, had come into the room. And it was in therapy that I learned why. I interviewed a comedian, Shane Gillis, recently, and he said something about, I asked him, what proportion of comedians do you think hate themselves? And he said, all of us, uh, <laughs> but we also think we're awesome. Uh, and I heard this and I thought to myself, like, I wonder how many politicians that applies to. And, and, and I want to share, you know, my own story. So like I'm the son of immigrants and my parents would put some pressure on me and I, I, I felt uh, angry and marginalized as a kid. I had some desire to prove myself or chip on my shoulder for most of my 20s. Now, but by the time I decided to run for president, I was like a dad and like a fairly fully formed adult. And like, I feel like, you know, like I, I've resolved <laughs> some, some, some of the things. Um, but for, for you, your book talks a lot about how um, you'd be super angry at yourself. Uh, and and I'm, I'm wondering how much of you think this applies to politicians writ large, given that at this point, you and I have both met a lot of them. I think it applies to a lot of politicians. And I think you can go even wider than that. I think it probably applies to, to the way you started this with the comedian, to people who, in some respect, perform, right? Who give speeches, who, who are actors, who are broadcasters. I think there is some piece of that um, for a lot of us. And the, and the piece I'm talking about is the split, the, the dichotomy between potentially very high self-confidence, but not high self-esteem. And, and that's how, because I've been thinking about this a lot lately. The part that it took me a while to figure out was, you know, my self-confidence, my idea of my own skill set never flagged at all, right? I mean, I was a guy who, despite the fact that I had this growing sense of self-loathing, which for me manifested as a sense that I hadn't done enough in the army, that other people had done so much more. And here I was with these problems and who the hell was I to have these problems? I didn't deserve, I didn't earn it, you know? But I also never, never ceased to feel like, yeah, so I'm 26. Of course I should be in the state legislature. Yeah, I'm, I'm 31. Of course I should be the secretary of state. Yeah, I'm 34, or 33, whatever I was when I ran. Of course I should be a U.S. senator. I'm, I'm 37. Yes, I should be president of the United States. Well, in the meantime, I'm in my mind, like, I'm an irredeemable piece of shit. <laughs> but I was also like, but nobody's better at this than me. Uh, so it is a, a really interesting difference. And and, you know, I, I obviously talked about it with my therapist a lot, and, and he sort of helped me see that 
I was taking this thing that I believed and knew that I was very good at and that I cared about, and I was trying to use it to convince this other part of me that I was not an irredeemable piece of shit. So if, if I had enough people saying to me, what you did was really important, or if I had enough of a sense that I had made a difference in doing this thing or that thing, then I would feel redeemed enough to no longer feel really terrible about what kind of human I was. But I never stopped thinking that I was really, really good at being a politician. I just didn't think I was much of a human, and that's why I needed to do as much as possible as a politician so I could prove to that other part of myself that I was not irredeemable. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Your profile goes truly national when you run for the U.S. Senate uh, in, in 2016. That's when this famous ad that you and I referenced about you taking apart a, a, a rifle blindfolded arises. Uh, you raise, uh, I'm sure, millions and millions of dollars uh, just about every national figure comes and tries to stump for you. And you outperform Democrats or Hillary Clinton specifically by some whopping margin, like 16 points mm -hmm. uh, in yeah. Missouri, which unfortunately is not enough to win, in part because Missouri has gone from being a perennial swing state um, to red. I mean, right now it's uh, Republican yeah. plus nine, maybe, something along those lines. Why do you think Missouri has gone from purple to, to red uh, over the next, the last, gosh, I guess it's been like, you know, 10 or 12 years. Well, I like to joke that we just officially joined the Southeastern Conference. Like we used to, you know, we, Mizzou football and everything used to, used to be like, it was us against Nebraska, us, you know, now it's us against Auburn. So like our politics and our, our colleges went that direction, our college went that direction, but, you know, obviously there's more to it. And I think when you look back on when Missouri was a bellwether state, which lasted like 100 years, um, you used to be able to take a, like a map of the United States and lay it on top of Missouri. And in terms of demographics, it looked very similar, right? Like the east and west coasts of Missouri, Kansas City and St. Louis, that, that's where your greatest population density was. And then in the middle, you had Columbia, Missouri, which is a college town. You had some population density there. So those were your very blue areas, and they were... They, were, they outnumbered the rest of it on top of the fact that 
demographically uh, and also from an age like uh, stratagem perspective, we just lined up exactly with the country. And that's why it was so frequently the case that so went Missouri, so went the nation. Well, our demographics changed over time. Uh, the state got older, um, and more than anything, the Latino population in Missouri didn't grow like it grew in the rest of the country. And so as a result, we sort of slid into being more like those other states in the Southeastern Conference. You know, it, before that, it was like Iowa and Missouri had very similar politics, right? And then after a while, it was like, okay, and Iowa's now become pretty red, but you know, for a long time, it was like, okay, Iowa has this rural populist progressivism. And then it was like, okay, well, Northern Missouri is like Iowa and Southern Missouri is like Arkansas. And then eventually it just became like Missouri is a lot like Arkansas. Yeah. So I, I had a thesis uh, on this in the presidential. Um, so it's not just Missouri, as you pointed out, Iowa, also quintessential bellwether that now is Republican plus nine. Ohio, uh, purple as the day is long and now it's Republican right. plus eight. And so uh, one of the main things that I saw was that we'd eliminated 4 million manufacturing jobs, uh, many of which used to be in these states. And so it's been harder for a high school educated man uh, to be able to make a middle class living for himself and his family in a lot of the Midwest uh, and the South. Um, and that trend really took off around 2000. Um, and then you started to see the these states redden up during that time. One of the, the things that does make me sad and angry is that if you're the National Democratic Party and you look at what's happening in Missouri or Iowa or Ohio, or Ohio you're like, wow, we used to be really competitive here and now we're not. Uh, and you obviously live this because you were you know, the Democratic Senate candidate in 16 and you'd, again, like outperformed any, uh, anything else in the party. But the D National Democratic Party can just look up and say, that's okay, we'll just swap these states for Arizona, Georgia, uh, and Virginia that are, you know, getting um, more diverse. And then we can give up on Missouri, Ohio, and Iowa. And I'm just like, wait a minute, that, that like that's bad for the country. It's like, you know, like theoretically, it also tends to polarize us more because, uh, you know, it, it bifurcates us more in terms of urban, rural, or uh, white and, and diverse. Not only does it cause us to be more polarized, I also think that what it does is when you say it deepens the problem because, like, in terms of your political problem, you make it harder and harder to win it back later. It's not like you can just set it aside and go, well, we'll come back to that if the demographics change. Because, as David Axelrod likes to say all the time, if you tell someone that uh, they're not your voter, they will believe you, right? Like, so when, when, you, when you stop talking to the needs uh, or the concerns of certain people and you kind of act like, well, you're probably, you're probably for the other guy. They're like, I guess I'm probably for the other guy or gal. What frustrates me about that is that, you know, like I'm very much a Democrat because I look at the Democratic policy, you know, spectrum and go, yeah, I think I agree with almost all this. Where I get irritated is that this debate that we keep having in, in the Democratic Party, which is the wrong debate. We keep asking this question of, should we move more to the middle or should we just tack all the way to the left? Is that how to get these voters back? And I'm like, we are asking the wrong question. My neighbors in Kansas City do not look at Joe Manchin and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and see two people with different ideological sets. They go, okay, so they're both Democrats? Like, you, you either, you sink or you swim together, right? So it's not a question of how progressive are you, how not progressive are you? It's 
are you talking about the things that concern these people? Now, we are talking about things, health care, guns, all this stuff, that will make a difference in these people's lives, but we're not talking about it the way they think about it. Where I live, what people are worried about is, and you just spoke to it with the manufacturing issue, is are my kids going to have to move somewhere else in order to raise their family, in order to be successful? Because that means I'm going to have to choose if I have the means to choose, I'm gonna have to choose whether to move to be with my grandkids or stay in the place that I call home. But that's, that sounds like a very practical thing. What it really is, is, is my family going to be together? Am I gonna be able to keep my family and the people I care about whole? Yep. And, and that's what frustrates me is that the reason that people in my party think that this is about going left or going right, you know, on the left spectrum, going center or going left, is because it's it's not that like they're from the coast and so therefore they're too liberal, which is what people think it is. No, it's like when they're from New York or LA or whatever, the problem is they live in the place our kids move to for opportunity. So they're less likely to understand that this is the concern that we have to speak to. No, the, the tough thing is, like, you're a parent now, and congratulations on your, uh, your, your daughter. Oh, uh, how old is she now? Uh, she'll be two in September. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that, that also hit home for me because there was a point when I was running for president, and my wife and I were talking about trying to have another child. Um, and there was a period when it was like, well, like, I don't know if we can do that given uh, what I'm doing. Um, and it, it seems very clear to me that your decision to... Uh, step away from the trail. Uh, it was vital for your mental health. It was vital for your marriage, but it also is almost certainly, uh, you know, responsible for your having a baby girl now. <laughs> so, so no, it, you're it's, absolutely it's, right. Like, it, like, my wife was like, "I'm not, I'm not doing this again on the course that we're on," and and I couldn't argue with her. You know. Yeah, yeah. So I, I saw that as like a very, very, uh, you know, big win. <laughs> like for, for, for sure. That that speaks to your mental health, Andrew. That you saw it as a win. <laughs> oh, but but again, I mean, a lot of this book you can probably tell. Like I, I found it very very relatable. Um, though though I will tell you, Jason, I was a little bit uh, frustrated with, at the dates of some of your therapy sessions because I was like, man, I was like slogging it out in Iowa, New Hampshire. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was, I tell you, that was really surreal, right? Because here I was, <clears throat> I thought I was going to be out there doing the same thing at that time. And so here I was, like, I have a weekly therapy session and nothing else on my calendar. And I'm just, like, trying to figure, like, learn, like, okay, how, how long do you put a salmon in the oven, right? Like, but, like, how long do you put a salmon in the oven? And can I concentrate on that long enough to not think about this other thing, whatever it is, this intrusive, you know, traumatic memory? And then, you know, I'm just doing this homework that my therapist gave me during the day. But, like, I'll be at Costco and like, you know, Kamala Harris will call me to talk about veterans issues. And I'm just like a stay at home dad. It was very confusing, right? It's like trying to figure out, because we're all doing that all the time, right? We're all writing our own story. We're all the star of the movie that we're in. And so trying to rewrite that story for myself at that time was a, a confusing, a confusing thing. Yeah. So after your Senate race, because you outperformed the party so much, uh, everyone was looking to you for advice and guidance. You found yourself thrust into um, presidential contendership and you're like, Hey, wild, like, you know, like I, I, uh, didn't even think I won that last race. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
uh, Pre President Obama invites you uh, to meet with him in, in D.C. and you guys shoot the shit for an hour and a half. By the way, never happened with me, so thank you, President Obama. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, it's not too late. No, no. I mean, he, he called me after the, the, the race. And I, I met him nice. in the White House uh, a couple of times. It's fine. So you sit and meet with him uh, for an hour and a half, and he talks about your running for president. So that must have been one of like the points where you're like, oh, shit, I think I'm going to do this thing. Yeah, it was. It was like, um, you know what it was for me at that point was as, as much self-confidence as I had about uh, as a politician, um, I was still aware that like, you know, I still had some imposter syndrome for sure about the idea that I was, uh, you know, not exactly um, out of central casting from a resume standpoint for running. But, you know, so when when a guy who was my political hero, a guy who, <clears throat> you know, I had so much respect for, it wasn't like it wasn't like he was like, you're the one, you know, he was just like, it could be you like you do have the skill set like there are other people who it could be. But like he wasn't like this is a bad idea. You know, he was like, I could see this. And to have that sort of validation, it meant a lot to me. And, and it had a lot to do with me going like, all right, I'm going to do this because I just had so much respect for him, for him to treat it like it was not a bad idea. It was big for me. So you're gearing up for the presidential run, but at this point, um, your uh, PTSD is manifesting at higher levels, uh, and you make what I think is a very, very brave decision to seek treatment and then also share with people why you're seeking treatment. Become a role model for, at this point, probably hundreds of thousands of uh, veterans and their families, probably millions of Americans, and you improved through treatment. Um, your chronicling your own treatment, I thought was tremendous because it was, again, very honest uh, and optimistic. If someone does the, the work, like they actually can start to understand their own brains and feelings, feel the feelings, uh, as, uh, yeah. as Nick would say. That's right. Yeah, man, it means so much to me that because look, I've done like a lot of these interviews and not everybody gets the chance to read the book beforehand. So I, I really appreciate it. Once I decided and it wasn't like I had like a long, a long process, as you know, from reading the book of deciding to step away. It was just like things had been getting bad for a really long time. And then they they just started getting worse a lot faster. And I was scared because I was having these suicidal thoughts at a greater clip than before. And it got to a point where I was like, I, I can't do that. I don't want to do this anymore. And, and I, and I didn't want to want to die. So once I'd made that choice, I, you know, I, I talked with my longtime campaign manager and with my wife and, and it was like, okay, I had some options. I could, I could say that, well, I'm just stepping aside uh, from the mayor's race because let America vote is so important right now. Or I could, you know, there was a lot of different things I maybe could have done, but I felt like, you know what? I hope that I'm able to get better, but I also felt like, I feel like if somebody had done this a long time ago, maybe I would have tried to get treatment a lot earlier. So I just thought, well, I want something good to come out of this. And so that's why I decided to be public about it. At the time, I pretty well figured, like I was pretty sure that I was ending any chance of a political career because nobody had ever really done what I was doing, um, or at least anybody whose mental health issues had become public had never really had a career after that. I, it was scary because it, I, I was okay with trading that in. Uh, at that point, I, I had no choice but to trade that in to get better, but I didn't actually know if I could get better. But I just decided, you know, if this will help somebody, then that's a pretty good public service. And uh, so that's the choice I made. Uh 
Uh, you helped destigmatize seeking treatment for mental health. I mean, it's no exaggeration to say that you saved a lot of lives. Um, uh, you, you saved another bunch of lives through the Afghan Rescue Project, which we can talk about. So I'll, I'll just speak for myself because I think that's the most comfortable thing. Um, when I was a teenager, uh, my school referred me to a mental health counselor because I seemed uh, angry or angsty or lonely or brooding or something like that. Uh, I enjoyed it. I got a lot out of it. Uh, I looked forward to it. Uh, she at, at one point was like, look, I think you're fine. And so, you know, this will be our last session. And uh, we, we hugged. Um, but ever since then, I was like, wow, everyone should do that. Uh, mm -hmm. Because, <laughs> you know, like, like, like uh, how does it do anything but help? And then my brother has become um, a psychology professor whose work centers on stigma and mental health. Wow. That's and great. so I've always been a very passionate believer in seeking mental health treatment and the fact that uh, mental health is health. Countless lives are destroyed or diminished uh, as a result of the fact that people aren't mm -hmm. seeking the kind of care. Um, but I'll, I'll also say that as someone who's been in the public eye, um, your instinct really cuts against the grain of what most anyone else does in your situation um, because you're just so used to trying to present a certain front to the world uh, and that, and so I, I've, okay, I'll just, I, more me, but like there have been times where I did not want to be doing whatever the fuck I was doing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like, yeah, I bet. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I don't particularly want to like, uh, you know, show up to the, this event, spar with this reporter, like do this debate, you know, like, like I'm, answer there, the like, same I, I, questions over and over again. Maybe, maybe I would like to be with my family. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like, oh, or it's like, Hey, I can sense that like my wife is struggling and here I am like, mm -hmm. you know, three time zones away, like, uh, trying to tell yeah. people how great I am or how important this campaign is. You know, like well, the, there are a lot of behaviors. Well, hold that on. That's a really important thing you just said, that dichotomy of, I feel like I'm not holding up this, my end of the bargain in something very important to me, my marriage. And what am I doing right now? while I'm not holding up that end of the bargain. I'm telling people how great I am. Like it, that does take a toll. Like it, it can make you feel pretty bad about yourself. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it, it can become very unhealthy, very quick. I mean, the best part of my campaign was when my family showed up down the stretch which was like two years in. Um, my, my wife had a running joke that she only shows up if I get to 3%. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you know what's funny though, is that like you just said two years in, pe there's people listening to this who clearly, you know, they listen to your show, they follow you a lot, they, 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 they're gang gang or, you know, they know this stuff, who probably are like, wait, two years? Because just the same way people say to me, like, oh, I discovered you with the gun ad or oh, I, you know, your podcast. I, and you exist in people's consciousness from that point forward that they, but what they don't realize is you ran for president for two years, right? Like I, I didn't even end up running and I was soft running for president for like a year. I, I ran for the Senate for almost two, like, it's just interesting. That I think people don't realize that it's a nonstop endeavor for way before you ever realize that we're doing it. Yeah, to, to your point, Jason, uh, it makes you appreciate people who are in it for a while because, like, as a candidate or an official, like, you know what it takes. Let's say that I make a presidential debate stage and then people are like, oh, who the heck is this guy or, you know, whatnot. It's like, well, to get there, like, I had to go through a lot of shit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you man. Know what I mean? like, every, every, so every dinner in Iowa, 
every, you know, three people are gathered and you're there, you know? In my case, it genuinely was three people for quite some time. Whereas you would have had a, a crowd waiting for you. Jason, one of the things also in your book that, that um, frustrated me, there were a lot of things in your book that frustrated me. Um, <laughs> but, but, but one was, you start this organization, Let America Vote, and it has uh, massive operations in like New Hampshire and Iowa. I started a nonprofit uh, and I can prove to everyone uh, who wants to look that I had no intention of running for president because we never went near New Hampshire or Iowa, even though we were in like 12 <laughs> states. It's like, oh, if I'd had my shit together, I would have gone to Manchester and Iowa City. <laughs> well, you, you needed my more pathological need to avoid myself. So your, your journey uh, is genuinely saving lives, uh, you know, oh, like that. Thanks, that's, I mean, that, that's totally clear. Uh, and you have daughter, uh, you know, you're coaching your son's little league, you're playing ball, you're actually physically healthy when before that you were grinding yourself in, and you're back into dust. And, and uh, you're also, uh, I referenced it earlier, but um, you started the uh, Afghan refu uh, rescue project that managed to get a thousand Afghans out of the country uh, when the U.S. pulled out? Yeah. Um, yeah. So what happened is, is, you know, I'm like a lot of other vets, Afghan vets in the country who just still had people there. Right. Uh, last August, when everybody's trying to marshal their own folks together and then get them into the airport, because that was really the only way out of the country to avoid Taliban retribution. Um, but it started with just me and then it was a couple of my battle buddies. And then eventually there were quite a few of us. And we weren't able to get our people into the airport. And in fact, um, we were trying to get our people into the airport and working with the Marines on the ground when the bomb went off. And so it was really upsetting, obviously. And then, you know, the last planes left and my buddies and I made the, at the time, probably ill-advised, I don't know, impulsive decision to be like, we're still going to get you out. Having no idea how the heck that would work. Um, but yeah, we ended up getting everybody up to Masri Sharif where the Taliban hadn't fully consolidated control yet, and then raising a bunch of money to charter uh, a full airliner to fly into Masri Sharif and then holding, like literally hiring like a caterer and, and, and holding a fake wedding for four days in Masri Sharif so that we could put everybody in one place. You know, the, the way that it was working, at least at that point, was it was like if the Taliban found you and you were on their list of people they were looking for, which all of the, our folks were, then, you know, they got to be the Taliban, kill you, take you to prison, whatever. But if they, if they didn't find you until you presented at the airport with a visa and like on a manifest to fly to another country, well, then it was an international incident if they killed you. And they were trying to be somewhat more, they're somewhat less isolated than before. And so it was like this terrible game of like tag or, or capture the flag where you've got to get physically into the airport with this document and then you're safe. And so that's what we, that's what we did. It worked on that first one, and then we realized, well, we could maybe keep doing this. So we raised a bunch of money and um, ended up doing a bunch of flights. And actually, at this point, I think we're now above uh, 1,800 people um, who we've helped get out. And it's, you know, I never did anything like that when I was in office. So it's really easy for me to look at things and go like, yeah, I think I have a much greater impact now. Again, saving lives. Who the heck gets 1,800 Afghan translators and their families uh, out uh, Jason Kander does. It was kind of an accident, but I mean, I, I appreciate it. It was. Uh, it, it's genuinely some superhero shit, Jason. Uh, and and now you are uh, 
trying to get more veterans uh, the help that they need. And as someone who ran for president, I met personally hundreds of veterans uh, who um, were struggling, truly. Uh, I heard horror stories about the VA, you know, and it was tough because these were men and women who'd given so much to the country, uh, you know, and, and now you're trying to uh, help many of them too. Yeah, um, I'm in now the best civilian job I've ever had as, as president of National Expansion at Veterans Community Project. Um, I actually just, I'm, I'm talking to you from a, uh, from a hotel room in St. Louis because I'm doing a book event here tonight, but just an, an hour ago, I was at the site of our new campus that we're building here in St. Louis, and it's just so cool. I mean, it's like what we're building here is a 50 unit, like 50 tiny homes village with a community center and an outreach center, so we'll be able to take homeless veterans move them into our village, get them full comprehensive wraparound case management services, which, and then that's part of our whole system that has an 85% success rate of then getting wow. them successfully into permanent independent housing. But then our outreach operation is this whole other part that people were less known for, but uh, that our people are less aware of, but it's just, it's what the VA really is meant to be, which is any veteran can walk in with any issue and we will work with a community partner to solve it. It's actually how I got involved. I, I was running for mayor and I got the VIP tour of the, the you know, mothership campus in Kansas City, which at the time was the only campus. And I was blown away by it. And six weeks later, I'm on suicide watch in the ER at the VA. And the, and the people at the VA are saying like, hey, we're ready to help you. You got to enroll in the system. It's going to take a few months. And I'm thinking like, I don't have a few what? months. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, seriously, I'm on suicide watch here. And it wasn't that they didn't want to help. It's just like, you know, this, the, the VA is full of awesome people who are hamstrung by the system. And so I call my buddy who was the co-founder of Veterans Community Project and the CEO and who had given me the tour. And I'm like, hey, man, I'm announcing this thing tomorrow that's probably going to be pretty big news. And I'm saying I'm going to the VA, but the VA just told me it's going to be months before I can get in. I don't know what to do. And he's like, well, come on down here. So I go down there and I end up walking through the outreach center uh, walking into the outreach center, just like thousands of other Kansas City vets, no different. And they expedited my paperwork like they do for others. And a week later, I had my first therapy appointment at the VA. So uh, I was already a believer. Now I'm a super believer in the program. And six months later, I'd been going to weekly therapy. I'm doing well. I'm hanging around all the time because I was just inspired by it. And, uh, and I'd been giving them advice because all these other communities were saying, hey, what you've done in Kansas City is not been done anywhere else. Can you come and do it here? And I had, you know, Let America Vote. I had created a national organization before. So I'm just kind of giving advice. And finally, my buddy Brian, uh, who's the CEO, is the CEO, said to me, like, hey, you ain't working. You're just hanging out here. <laughs> like, how about you just come on full time? And, uh, and so that, that's what I did. And now um, I, you know, we, we are right now building a village in the Denver area. We've been serving veterans there for a year. Like I said, we're building in St. Louis. We just broke ground in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. We just bought land in Oklahoma City. And then we got some other stuff laid on for after that. So it's a great gig. I love it. Uh, it it's really awesome stuff, man. And, and the fact that you made the right choice for uh, your yourself and millions of Americans and veterans uh, and your family, it's still not the same kind of choice that a lot of other people make. You know, like I mean, that th this thing will um, will uh, eat some people alive. Um, and, and so reading your book, like, I, I think you can tell, like, I felt it pretty deeply. It's like, a, but I, like, I appreciate, uh, the leader and person that you are in ways that uh, I know a lot of other people will as well. 
So the obvious question that people have is like, hey, you know, and this is an awful fucking question. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? But but yeah, it, ahead, it's though. the entire, it's like, look, you know, like, I'm doing awesome work. Like th things are great. It's like, but then there's always like the, the what's next question. Sure. Um, and, and it seems and you were a surrogate for the Biden campaign. They wanted to rope you back into Washington. Um, did, did you and Diana seriously consider uh, making that move? No, not really. I mean, we, we knew that um, that it was possible that they would reach out and say, like, hey, do you want to be considered for the cabinet or, or what? And so we had talked about all that. And, you know, and it's once in my case, like once I had kind of cleared out a lot of the mental health cobwebs that were, you know, motivating me for the wrong reasons before, uh, it was just so much easier to make clear headed choices. And it's like, hey, um, our son has an awesome friend group. I've got this great job. Uh, I, you know, I, I love doing what I'm doing. I'm enjoying my life combined with in the past, I thinking about the future all the time and planning out my political future was really like, that was what I turned to for medication. It was like, that was my self-medicating. If I could be thinking about the future all the time, I didn't have to be in the intolerable present. Uh, but now the present w is great. And so we didn't really seriously, uh, consider it. We sort of like fantasized about what it would be like for a couple of days and then but not in like a ooh that would be great just sort of like let's kick it around and then it was like no we were right it's not something that we want to do right now uh, and one thing that does happen jason that you do write about in the book as well um is there people around you that you feel responsible to and for uh and sometimes uh you know and that's one of the the things that i don't think people appreciate uh about political figures is you kind of feel like you need to be making progress because there are people who bet their lives and careers on you and you want to create opportunities for them. Absolutely. It, I think in that way, you know, look, I've never been an entrepreneur. My wife has. But I think in that way, it, you, I think you would agree that it's similar, right? It's that, that in, in that case, it's like, you know, you're more worried about meeting their payroll and, and that kind of stuff. But in, but in this, it's like this is their they have a political career, too, you know, and so. Um, I'm really gratified that the people who were in my sort of closest circle politically, that they've all gone on to do great things and they're doing really well. But there was certainly a period for a long time where I felt very guilty about that, that they had, they had put all their chips in the Jason Kander, uh, you know, bucket. And I don't think I got that idiom right, but you know what I mean? Oh, no, we know. All, all their eggs in the Jason Kander basket. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I had been like, Hey, uh, I'm going to take this basket over here and coach little league instead. And I don't need a staff. And so I felt very guilty about that for a long time. Well, you shouldn't Jason. And I think that's really one of the big points. You can tell I took some life lessons from this book. It's an awesome accomplishment. It's going to touch and inspire tons of people. And I do think that this book is going to save lives. Um, so Please do be proud. And anyone who's listening or, or seeing this, Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PSD by Jason Kander, a real American hero and someone who's going to keep doing amazing things in and outside of politics, uh, I'm sure, for uh, as long as he's breathing. Thank you so much, Jason. I appreciate the heck out of you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it, Andrew. This was fun. Thanks for doing this.